Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. make yourself comfortable. Actually, my my favorite time to sit is in the season of snow. There's just something about the way the snowflakes drop, especially this kind of snow where they land so softly. And uh, sometimes I wish that, like, everything in my life could land like that. <laughs> and uh, I, you probably can't tell, but I shoveled up there. <laughs> when I was shoveling uh, the snow today, I was... Uh, I was shoveling and, and, and I, f- I found a dead bird, fro- a frozen bird, and um, it threw off my talk. Because I, I wanted to talk about the stages of meditation practice, but then I, I, you know, coming across a frozen bird, uh, I didn't know what to talk about. So, um, I picked up the bird with my gloves, and it was heavier than I thought. And uh, do you ever notice that about birds? You, you think they're supposed to be pretty light, uh, but they're not actually. And they're pretty huge when they're still. And uh, carried the bird to the garbage and dumped it. And it landed with a loud thud. And, um, and then I stood there thinking. And then I, I realized that I, I can stand here and think. And the snow is falling, and the snow just falls, and it lands. But I can stand there thinking. And and then I thought, you know, that the bird can die, um, or maybe the other way around is we die, but the bird doesn't die. Only we can die. The bird can't really die, actually. In the same way that it, when the snowflake lands, it melts and it becomes water again. And, um, there's a wonderful uh, poem which begins, uh, when you follow a river all the way up to its source, you just find more and more clouds. 
And I think the snow reminds us of that as soon as it lands and becomes water, and our body is like this. And, but then for some reason, the humans, we, we can die in a way that the snowflakes don't really die. And um, it's like the lights in here, you know, you can dim them and then they, the lights go out, but for the experience of the light bulb, it doesn't have this experience of dimming. And time is like this, from the perspective of time, time doesn't pass, it's just, for us, time is passing. And um, so it got me thinking a lot about, you know, our meditation practice, and um, maybe for some people they don't have to think much about their meditation practice. Um, but really, when, when we uh, are meditating, actually what we're becoming is a person. And somehow in our lives, in our stress, and in our preoccupations, we somehow aren't people. It's like we're bigger than people, pushing each other out of the way and, and uh, bending for others in ways that are, is not helpful sometimes, you know. And so in a way what this practice is, it's kind of like making us people again. In the same way that uh, birds can't really die. Watch your hair. I don't want you to die. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know only we can feel alone and I don't know about you but one of the feelings that I have a hard time with is being misunderstood you know but I don't think birds feel that I'm certain one snowflake is not misunderstood by another you know <coughs> And um, what I wanted to do tonight and uh, also next week, because these are the last two weeks before about 45 of us go on a silent retreat over the New Year's, um, which is actually my favorite event of the year. Um, we go up north and we spend uh, five days in silence and um, we get really quiet. And uh, there's something about doing that practice, not only at the new year, entering the new year in silence, but also doing that practice with the forest in the wintertime and with the snow. And last year it was so snowy and warm and the moonlight was amazing. So you could go out at night and you could see all through the forest in the middle of the night. It was really really beautiful. And so I thought because this is sort of the end of the semester and we're about to go on retreat, many of us in this room, um, I would talk a little bit about stages of meditation practice. And you might think this is an odd thing coming out of my mouth because I actually don't like talking too much about stages of anything. Um, but there is a time where it's helpful to think in terms of stages. And I think some of us, we hit these plateaus in our practice where we really see that the practice is taking root and we notice we're much more attentive. And maybe we actually even experience a, a little more creativity and less reactivity. 
And then we also start to notice that um, um, we got somewhere. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to say, oh, two years ago, I was in the, if I was in the same situation two years ago, I would be doing such and such, but I'm not. And to actually see that you've moved through something, even though you might return again to the same pattern in an unskillful way. But we can see there is a kind of movement. And in a way, part of the movement of meditation practice is really to start experiencing how the breath moves without us. How the body can experience itself. And how we can become people again. And... Um, I wanted to talk about stages of practice, even though they're never clean stages, because I think it might help uh, draw a map. Because usually I like to talk about practice as being immediate, you know, and sudden in each moment. But, but at the same, in the same breath, uh, there are some stages, and I just thought I'd articulate them. Um, So the first is uh, a vow that I think we all make to actually sit down. And um, that intention, whether it's conscious, semi-conscious, unconscious, or whether there's thousands of strands of intention all competing, to actually just get us to sit down. And I think for most of us, the reason why we get on this cushion and sit down um, is because of some kind of stress or discontent or some kind of existential anxiety or disorientation. And um, when we sit down, the first stage of our practice is done, which is that we actually made it to the cushion and we set up our body in this posture. And sometimes I sit down and I like to think that there have been thousands of people over thousands of years that have taken this posture. The Buddha practiced yoga. And near the end of his yoga practice, he was doing very intense ascetic practices. Uh, some of them were uh, starving himself and only taking a tiny bit of food and eventually going on long fasts. And sometimes you see images of the Buddha like this, you know, with, he, it's said that when he touched his navel, he could feel his spine. And I think some of us who have done this kind of practice in our lives, this kind of way of controlling things, um, we notice that you can get kind of high off of it, actually. It feels like you're getting pure, you know. And um, there's something really addictive in that, you know. But it's not really being a person. It's actually having your circumstances totally controlled. You know, and not really nourishing yourself. Which is actually a kind of violence. And so the Buddha actually gave up those practices. And that was kind of the end for him. And he didn't know what he could do to work with his suffering. 
And so he was determined to sit down. And he went to a tree and he sat under the tree. And sometimes I think we have the landscape for this kind of practice. In the wintertime, to put on your snowsuit and your, you know, Buddhist Gore-Tex. <laughs> and um, could you imagine, like, Gore-Tex robes? <laughs> and, and, and when the Buddha... When the Buddha gives his instructions about meditation, they're always under trees, actually. The Buddha was born under a tree. He was enlightened under a tree. He gave most of his teachings under trees. He died under a tree. I don't think the Buddha ever thought about indoor practice. And actually, I think what a lot of us are suffering from is too much indoors. We can't feel weather patterns when they're coming. We know about them from the internet. (laughs) My father is an architect, and he has this gizmo in his house where uh, it's like a little uh, uh, flat screen something that's about this big, and it controls like his stereo and the lighting and everything in the house. And um, when it's not um, controlling music or, or telling you what song's playing, it's showing you the weather. And so he walks over to it and he's like, look at it outside. <laughs> so... Um, The Buddha was determined to sit still and really get to the root of what was going on for him. So I think that's the first stage, is like the courage to stop. The courage to stop and to to ask ourselves, like, what's really true? You know, the first homework assignment I ever gave at Center of Gravity, I still remember so clearly. It was about five years ago. And I asked people when they were going to sleep at night and they were lying down on their pillow to tell themselves as a bedtime story, the story of their life. So start from, you know, whatever you've heard about, like how your parents met or something, and just start telling the story of your life to put you to sleep. But every once in a while, stop and ask yourself, is this true? Is this true? And in a way, I think this is what our meditation practice is doing. It's going underneath the stream of language and storytelling and saying, what's true? Just knowing about my problems, knowing about my issues, knowing about patterns, uh, seems to not resolve this deeper anxiety that I feel. This loneliness, this separation, and the experience of being a separate self. So how do I really enter that? And I don't think you can do it by just thinking about it. If you could, we wouldn't be here doing this. So the first stage, I would say, of meditation is stopping and sitting down. Or as the punk rockers say, sit down and shut up. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the second stage of meditation is choosing an object and focusing on that object, which we explore usually here as the breath, and letting the breath calm the mind, calm the body, and calm the nervous system. And the more we focus on the breathing, the softer and softer the breath gets. And as the breath gets finer and finer and finer, your attention, if the posture is alert, gets finer and finer and quieter and quieter. And then as soon as you're distracted, the breath gets coarse again and so does the mind. And it's good the breath gets coarse again or you wouldn't have anything to find again. And then you follow the breath until it gets quieter and quieter and quieter. The next stage of practice is that when you have an object that you can return to over and over again, you start to open to that object, in this case we're talking about the breath, more fully, so that we become more and more intimate with the breath. And this is usually when the first two insights happen. The first insight is how busy the mind is. And you might think that's not, of course, I know how crazy my mind is. But a lot of people don't. I know that sounds so simple to say. But a lot of people, you know, entering their body or their mind is actually a scary thing. It's threatening or not something someone even thinks about. And the first insight into how busy the mind is and how conditioned and habitual the body is, the emotional body, the physiological body, um, this is what gives us that initial energy to keep going, I think. And... Um, Another insight that happens, too, is being able to see how the more intimate you become with the breath, the more impersonal it is. And this is kind of hard to think about conceptually, because it doesn't actually make sense linguistically, but actually the, the more you can enter breathing and feel the breath moving on its own, the less it becomes my breath and the more you experience it just as breathing. And I think this is kind of an important stage because then we see how a lot of the work of the body is just taken care of by the body. And we don't need to like manipulate every single thing that we encounter. And then if you can do that with the breath, really become intimate with breathing and see how it's not me or mine, then you can start to do this with any object, actually. You can then do this with sensations in the body, noticing sensations in the body come and go, but then you can do it with grief. And then you can do it with loneliness. And then you can do it with joy. Joy is present, and you don't have to tell yourself you're having a good time. There's just oneness with joy. And then, 
when you become that intimate with a mood, it passes. The times where we're stuck in moods is when we're not actually intimate with them. It's like there's someone beside us having the mood and we're talking to them about it and we're not actually in it. And this is the thing about, you know, strong or turbulent feelings is like it takes so much to convince ourselves that it's worth entering. You know? And then we do and we and, and when you really enter pain, it's no problem. And this is true for emotional pain too. For loss, you know, it's no problem. And then it's it's it passes and and, and then next two minutes later we're hungry. You know? And then and then we're, you know, agitated and then we're really peaceful and then we're hungry again. And then we're sad again. You know? That part you can't control. You can't control how much snow falls. Um, the next stage uh, of meditation is watching how when we're not focused so much on the hardness of experience, um, we start to notice more subtlety. So this is true even of the breath. Moving from just noticing where the breath is constricted or where there's a lot of sensation to notice just more subtlety in the breathing to notice the hardness of thoughts, to then start to notice more of the fluidity of thoughts. And one of the ways this is often done on retreat is as a student, you would get the instruction possibly to start paying attention to the breath in a place in your body or even outside of your body where the breath is really fine. So one common place is just outside the nostrils above your lips especially if you have a mustache. You can really feel the breath there, just outside the nostrils. And then there's not as much sensation, so you're tuned into something a little finer and a little quieter. And this is actually a fabulous stage because the body is settled and and you can sit now. And not only can you sit, but you're paying attention not just to the big, hard things, but also just more to the fluidity of our thoughts and our breathing. An example of this, of moving from the hardness to the, to the more subtle, is when you go out into the wilderness. When you go out into the wilderness, especially this time of year, and you walk around for a few days. And I don't just mean when you go out for an hour, but I mean when you really, you know, get out there and, and, and you're not near a mirror and your phone and everything. And you just kind of lose track a little bit of the checking and rechecking that so often goes on in the mirror mind. And... Um, then you start to feel a kind of peacefulness that comes from being in the wilderness. Um, and then you, you, know, so you sit against a tree and then you close your eyes. And you close your eyes and then you're in touch with a certain kind of pleasure mm-hmm. that comes when the nerves and the mind are quiet 
And it's not a pleasure that's totally dependent on the wilderness, because actually now you've closed your eyes, so you're not, you, you don't have visual wilderness anymore. And then you take that pleasure that you feel, and you, you, you uh, breathe with it, and you let it expand. And this is actually the beginning of what we call in ter- technical meditation terminology, concentration. And usually the way you get concentrated is you take an external object and you help uh, that external object settle you and then there's a pleasure that comes. And the Buddha says there's two kinds of pleasure. There's a pleasure that's totally dependent on external objects and that's what you should relinquish. But then there's a natural pleasure that comes um, through settledness, through quietude. And that you should actually cling to a little bit. You should cultivate it. It's kind of an interesting way of talking about meditation, I think. And that's one of the ways you know if you're getting concentrated, is that the concentration has pleasure in it. And so some people say, oh, I'm really concentrated, you know, and you see them coming into the interview room with these eyes, like, I'm so concentrated, I'm not thinking about anything. And you just can ask a few questions and you can tell right away if it's concentration or not. Because concentration comes with relaxation. It's not like, you know, fighter pilots are so concentrated. They're one with an airplane. They're one with the gun. And then when they come out of, uh, when they come out of the plane, I was told recently that then they have to stay on the base for 24 hours before they're allowed to leave because they're so exhausted. So that's not the kind of concentration we're talking about. We're talking about a kind of concentration where you're opening to experience, but by relaxing into it. And there's a kind of pleasure there. And, you know, I'm not going to get into like the Theravada view of this, but when this starts happening, the Buddha talks about opening up to spaciousness And then within the spaciousness, one of the ways he talks about it is he calls it the signless. Is when the mind is not building itself up by signing things. A simple way of talking about that is not obsessing about language anymore. You're concentrated and then you don't need to talk about it. Do you know, some, sometimes I think a bit, a bit like the inner dialogue that you have when you get really settled is like, oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. It's like a little to the left, a little to the right, a little softer. There's no real, like, big conceptual stories going on. And then the Buddha says, and when this starts to happen, you let that go also. And he calls this the signless, or, or, or space. And the word for space in Sanskrit is akash. And it, actually, etymologically, akash is not how we think of spaciousness. The word actually means to be free of obstruction. So when we say, like, this room is spacious, well, not at the moment, but um, if there's space in this room, it means, you know, there can be a clear path from one side to the other. So that's how the Buddha talks about about space. Um, 
I'll go through this last last part. There's more to go, but I'll go through this last and then I'll open it up for any uh, conversation. Um, so at every stage, to get to the next stage, you have to let go what was in that stage. But not when you get into the signless. The Buddha says, then you don't let go of anything. Instead, you turn the mind back on itself. You turn the attention back towards attention. So you're turning consciousness back on itself. It's like you're looking back at the experience and saying, who is looking here? And the Buddha says, when you do this, you see three things. And the first thing is sensual desire. When you look back at the nature of awareness, the Buddha says the first thing you see is the desire for sensual gratification. This is one of the kind of like the roots of our psychology, sensual gratification. In other words, pleasure. We want pleasure. And we want to lean away from what's not pleasurable. And the second thing is attachment to becoming and non-becoming. So still wanting to have this happen to me so I can become enlightened. Right? Even at this subtle stage, this is it still feels like it's happening to a me and I want to get something out of this. This is the way I've been thinking about the ego past few months, trying to define the ego as like really seeing that the ego is just this attempt we have of trying to grasp ourselves. And you can't. You know. And so it's like when you really look at that, what's in the core of that? Attachment to pleasure and the desire to become. And then he adds, and I like this, attachment to non-becoming. You know. Because that's the flip side. Oh, well, I don't want to be anything. I'm going to completely let go. And then the last thing that you can let go of that you see, the third thing, is ignorance. And the word for ignorance in Sanskrit is avidya. It's always translated as ignorance in English. But actually, I, I like to translate it as not seeing. Because that's the etymo etymology of the word. Vidya is where we get the English word video, which means to see, and avidya means to not see. And I would even add, not really having the desire to see. There's some part of us that doesn't really want to see. And I find it interesting that this section is actually so deep in the concentration practice. You'd think kind of you'd let go of that a little bit earlier on the way. But actually, when you get concentrated, and then you look back at awareness, you find these three things in the way. And the, the point, and why I'm mentioning this, because I don't want to get too far into it, but, but the point is, is that even when you get concentrated, delusions right there, habits right there, 
And the reason why I like thinking about stages is like to remind us. Because when you hit these stages, you feel kind of special. And you laugh, but you'll see. And many of you have the experience. You get really concentrated and it feels so cool. And then right away, the mind comes in it. Oh, this is cool because it's happening to me. (laughs) But actually, what we're trying to enter in the meditation practice is to see that it's not happening to you. (laughs) And the you that needs to make it happen to um, is actually what gets in the way not from the heart of the practice, but from the ability to really enter the path or to really enter your life, to really have a heartfelt livelihood, to really do good work, to really have good relationships, to really see things appropriately and in context. What gets in the way? Ignorance, desire for pleasure, and attachment to becoming and to non-becoming. And a lot of spiritual people are like really into (laughs) non-becoming. It's like, I am not going to become anything. And it's like a negative theology, you know. God does not exist. God exists. God does not exist. And it's hard to put down that, that need to to really um, cling. And one of the nice uh, interpretations that Stephen Batchelor makes about craving is that it's not that craving only causes suffering. It's that the problem with craving, and this is what we find here that, that is being pointed out in these stages, the problem with craving is that it blocks you from really being on a path. Or I would even add to really be be the path. So anyways, these are some beginning thoughts to set out what we're going to do, hopefully more tonight, but also um, next week, and then especially on the retreat. Um, I could keep going. Um... I will, actually. I'm going to keep going, and then we'll open it up. Because there's one more thing I wanted to add. Um, There's a really wonderful uh, uh, teaching in the Pali Canon, in the Samyutta Nikaya. uh, It's number 16. um, Called the Counterfeit of the True Dhamma. (coughs) Some translations are the, the wilderness of the heart. I don't know. Um, where the Buddha talks about how does the Dharma die? Can it die? And the first thing he says is this. Just as there's no disappearance of gold as long as counterfeit gold has not arisen in the world, but there is the disappearance of gold when counterfeit gold has arisen in the world, In the same way, there's no disappearance of the Dhamma as long as counterfeit, as long as a counterfeit of the true Dhamma has not arisen in the world. 
Sounds a bit strange at first. But what he's saying is, is when counterfeit gold arises in the world, um, it doesn't mean that that's the end of the value of gold. The reason why counterfeit gold ends the value of gold is because people start to not be able to tell the difference. And they start using counterfeit gold as if it's real gold. And then the Buddha uses another simile where he says the Dhamma does not die like a ship sinking all at once. It dies slowly. And then he gives five reasons for the death of the Dharma. And here's what they are. The first is um, a case where monks, nuns, male lay followers, and female lay follow followers live without respect. Actually, there's different translations of this. One of them that I like is uh, live with reverence or deference for the teacher. Uh, I think in modern psychological language, we'd say inflation and deflation. Live with inflation of the teacher and deflation of the teacher. They lived with inflation of the Dharma and deflation of the Dharma. They live with inflation of the Sangha and deflation of the Sangha. They live with inflation of training and deflation of training. And the fifth one is inflation of concentration and deflation of concentration. This is a really interesting teaching, I think. And we could spend a whole evening, of course, going through it. But what I wanted to point out here, which is sort of how I was originally going to lead into this talk, is that one of the ways that these teachings die <coughs> is when we inflate certain parts of the practice or deflate it. And to talk about the teacher and the teachings, and that would take months. And we'll do that um, in months. Um, <laughs> But the part here that I find really interesting is the training and the concentration, where we inflate concentration. And I think you hear this a lot in meditation communities, where they take concentration states and they talk about them as if they're holy. And like, it's this thing one day you'll get to. And then it doesn't sound practical. And then we sit and we meditate and we think, oh, and then one day the concentration state is going to come to me. Or we deflate it. Well, I've never felt it, so it's probably not important. And the Buddha says here, actually, the deflation of concentration is actually one of the pieces that can really sink the Dharma. Because then we confuse meditation states, but they're counterfeit. They're not really concentration. And the reason why I mention this is so we'll value stages and maps sometimes. Okay, that's all I have to say. <laughs> so, are there any questions or comments? We have a little bit of time still. Lori. I'm not sure I understand inflation, deflation. Is there another word that could be used? Reverence or deverence. 
Is deference a word? <laughs> deference. Yeah. Yeah. It's like putting something up on a pedestal or putting it in a hole. Yeah. This is often how the teachings are talked about. If you take something and you raise it up, you have to dig out the earth under your own feet in order to make a mound to put something on. And then you're stuck in a hole. Your teacher's up on a mound and can't help you. <laughs> you know? Or with concentration. You know, oh, you know, one day I'm going to do the training of concentration. As opposed to seeing that it's here now. Or to put it down. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. I was curious of your perspective. Um, there's times when you might share the, the stages of your meditation practice with the teacher, uh-huh. and and um, and sometimes the response will be, you know, minor miracles, a way of a way of hearing what's said, but also um, kind of addressing that stage that a student might have reached as still a minor miracle, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. like. Um, hearing it, but also not going, oh, wow, great, good job, oh my god, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm interested in how you can approach your own meditation as you go through stages mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in a way that's not also, you know, bigging yourself up. Yeah. Sense. yeah. Well, two things. I think the first of all is you can't. Because the response from the ego whenever it's settled is to hijack the experience again because the ego doesn't want to be unemployed (laughs) so it sees this moment where it's been suspended and then because it never dies it sees that and then goes how can i own this somehow so actually our meditation practice and this is the trickiest thing about the practice is always going to get hijacked it's always going to get hijacked. So I think we do need feedback because sometimes we can't see you know, how it's getting hijacked. The second thing is I would try the bedtime story. Talk to yourself. Tell yourself a story about how your spiritual practice is going or how your meditation practice is going. And every once in a while, ask yourself, is this true? <coughs> and, and maybe sometimes it is. And then sometimes you can also see where there's padding, you know, where it's like, oh yeah, I was really still for a few minutes, but it didn't carry through. And it didn't help me with such and such. And then there's kind of like an honesty that we bring to, to this. In the precepts course that some, some of us are doing, the precept we're about to start studying, we've been studying nonviolence, we're about to study honesty. And one of the teachings on honesty is applying honesty to your own mind states. Like to really be honest about the quality of mind. And to really see if you're shitting yourself. And like, I don't know about you, but I need help with that. I I often need someone to say, no. (laughs) So, um... So I guess my response to what you're saying is yes and no. You know, I think there's a lot that we can see. And it's really helpful to have a map and also to have community. 
so you can talk to other people who may be just a little bit further down that particular road, which doesn't mean they're further down all roads. And maybe they can say, oh yeah, well, when you get down this particular path, you should turn left. And if you see that snow bank, you should make a right. You know? And then you can do that. But the point I, I really want to stress is it's not esoteric. Or it is esoteric, but it's technical. It's, it's just a tech, it's like learning how to play a piano or learning another language or something. And uh, I get frustrated sometimes in a lot of meditation schools where they take these kind of states and they romanticize it, you know, where it's like, but the truth is, is this practice is very gradual, but the experience of gradual is sudden. It's sudden in each moment. Each moment is suddenly that moment. And um, this, I think we need to be reminded of this a lot. Because otherwise we think practice is like getting to a place that we aren't at yet. And it's craving, actually, that creates that. Yes. When you were explaining the stages and how we are meant to let go of the previous stage, mm-hmm. that made sense to me for the first couple of stages. And then near the end, when you were talking about concentration and like the sweetness or the secondary pleasure, yeah, I don't understand how to where that part or how that serves even to let go as you move into the more final stage that you were offering. Well, the way you let go is that you you. S- I don't want to talk too far about it, but the theory is that when you're in the pleasure, you don't just hang out in the pleasure. I mean, you get into the pleasure and there's all kinds of cool things you can do. Uh, You know, one of the places that you know you're in a certain stage of concentration is that you can time yourself. So you say to yourself, I'm going to enter the stage for two hours. And then you don't have a timer, you just go in the stage and two hours later you wake up out of it. I can't do that, but I've heard about people who do it who I trust. And um, so that's one part, is there's all kinds of ways you can deepen that. But the other is that um, once you're in the pleasure, then you bring the inquiry in. Is this permanent? Is this self? Is this not self? Is there craving? And then you work within the pleasure, or the rapture, or the bliss of being settled. But it's not like you just space out there. You're completely there. And then you can actually bring in some inquiry and kind of check it out. It's like you've got to this area, and you want to kind of look around and see what's there and investigate a little bit. Yeah. So uh, there's something to explore. Michael, I'm not sure if I can articulate this well, but when you talk about stages, there's also the danger when you're getting hung up on that, and when you're getting hijacked, then you're getting into striving. Totally. That's what really occurred to me. We really want to not... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and actually, you know, that's what someone pointed out to me when I told them I was going to talk about stages tonight. (laughs) Because actually, we're here in a sangha where I don't like talking too much about stages. But actually... If there are people here in a circle where they do talk a lot about stages, 
um, sometimes you listen to people and it's like all this work of trying to get to these promised mm -hmm. stages. And yes, sometimes you do and it motivates you to see that it's true that you can, but it becomes a kind of striving. Yeah. And that's why it's interesting that, yeah. you know, even in the higher stage, the, if you want to talk about a higher stage, the Buddha says, and then look at the three things that are there. Yes, exactly. exactly. Craving yeah. for pleasure, for more. Yeah. Exactly. Um, craving exactly. for becoming or even non-becoming. So this wonderful saying, you know, don't go forward, don't go back, and don't stay in the middle. Because as soon as you say go forward, the mind goes, okay, what's back? Don't go back, okay, I'll just be, and don't stay in the middle. It doesn't really give you anywhere to stand. And this is what a good community and what a good practice does and what good teachers do is they keep pulling the rug out every time you get your minor miracle. Yes? Um, and what strikes me too is um, just holding like a lightness and gentleness to ourselves through all the stages because we're funny people and I love what you said about um, or it just makes me think of my experience out if I'm out of nature and I'm really present to something and then my mind is like, oh, look at me being present. Oh, oh! And I'm like, right. I get agitated and then I'm like, oh, but at least I can do that and like judge. Like, it's just it's such a funny dialogue yeah. of like, oh, I just ruined this moment. Okay, I'll get back to it. <laughs> so it's, I love, you said something about that and it made me think of my experiences of like having those beautiful moments and then and then the like the, the me, yeah, the hijack of like here's yeah. me. With, oh yeah, specialness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. And and the suffering that comes from that. <laughs> and then also that it's exactly that that makes things so beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's like it's exactly this ability to sometimes stand apart and to actually use words and see yourself using words. And be able to change them and make them mm -hmm. different ways. And not just look at the snow, but make you can actually make make a make something with it. Mm -hmm. And it's like so this problem with language is what causes so much suffering when we can't be skillful with it. And at the same time, it's what's so beautiful and so precious. And like what we need to be so grateful for. Mm -hmm. And why uh, we need to uh, value the poets and all the people in our culture who like really care that language doesn't go extinct. Um, because, uh, you know, Robert Bringher says that uh, languages are going extinct faster than species. And like, for some people, who cares? It's all about English. <laughs> but actually, when languages go extinct, it actually robs us of so much of what's so profoundly beautiful and healing about being a human being. And so, I don't want you to think that meditation is like you turn language into an enemy or something. But certainly, there are places, places, 
there are levels of awareness and of intimacy with interdependence that you can't get to with language. You can't get to with thinking. Mm -hmm. And the meditator knows that. Mm -hmm. And that's why the meditator becomes a good poet. Because in the abandonment of the structure of language, then you get to use it again. It's kind of like in Shavasana, you practice dying, and then you get up again. And then you're back in your life, but you've seen something. You've seen that you can be in your life with less clinging. And then actually, you're deeper in your life. You're deeper in your life. But the philosopher who sees that with language uh, doesn't necessarily have that experience. It's just you see, you have ideas about how language is like this, but it's not an intuition where your bones and stones are actually fluctuating and are not um, so fixed. One more comment. Well, maybe someone who hasn't gone yet, Christiane. Christiane. <laughs> I, just, like, I just don't understand how, if, like, when you become intimate with something like that, how reverence can actually arise. How it can't? Yeah, like, I think it, <coughs> that's what arises. Yeah. The Buddha said that's problematic. No, I don't think so. He says it's problematic when it feels like it's happening to a me continually and that the me then takes over and has the experience. So the reverence Yeah. And uh, you know there's, there's this story of Shinru Suzuki where he's moving boulders and then he goes and he sits down on his meditation cushion. You can actually watch this. It's like one of the only films of him teaching. And he says, oh, I was moving boulders and now I sit down and my back is so sore and I really feel how my muscles are so sore. And I realize I have a problem. It's his naive English is so great. I realize I have a problem. And then he says, and if I didn't have a problem, I couldn't meditate. <laughs> and I love, I love this actually because we talk about the breath as being an object but after a while that's not the object anymore the object is whatever floats in that becomes the predominant object as it floats through and the breath no longer is the predominant object actually um, and that's and usually what floats through are problems so this is like a hurrah for problems. If you're a meditator, it's nice to have problems, you know. And, um, and you know, unlike other forms of healing, it's not expensive to have them. You know, it's completely free. Okay. Let's finish chanting. And just a reminder before I finish, when you leave, please put uh, funds in the interdependence box. It's really appreciated. Um, secondly, um, you can put your name on the email list if you want to be on our email list. And lastly, if you're new here, please come and introduce yourself. Um, next week is our last week 
and uh, we're going to finish this topic. We're going to finish the topic. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, of uh, meditation practice. <laughs> then we take a break. We have a New Year's retreat. In the new year, um, we're going to formalize the teachings, and we're going to spend uh, three weeks on Norman Fisher's essay called The Eight Stages of Monastic Practice. And then we're going to study a text called the Flower Ornament Sutra, which is a great text with lots of gods and goddesses, for those of you who don't like that. <laughs> okay, let's finish chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. Be happy. May all beings be happy. <clears throat> May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. 